Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. I'm a female leader in sports. I'm the general manager of a AAA baseball team in minor league baseball, and I'm the first woman to hold this title in nearly 20 years. And I'm here with the Leadership is Female podcast to make sure that this amount of time never goes by again before another woman leads. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. So I am here to interview successful women in sport to uncover opportunity, learn the tips, learn from our mistakes, learn from our successes to get you to the top faster. Join me and my guests week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. I will lead her forward because leadership is female. On episode 23 of the Leadership is Female podcast, I interview Professor Alicia Jessup, an attorney who focuses on the intersection of sport, business media, and the law at Pepperdine University. She's the founder of RulingSports.com and a contributor to The Athletic and The Washington Post. Throughout her career, Professor Jessup has had the opportunity to cover sports for a number of international media publications, including The Huffington Post, Forbes, CNBC, and SI.com. Alicia has published over 230 articles across these platforms and has been credentialed for sporting events, including the Super Bowl, NBA All-Star Game, NBA Finals, NCAA Men's Basketball Final Four, Indianapolis 500, Bundesliga Super Cup, and FEI World Cup. Professor Jessup frequently appears on television and radio to provide commentary and analysis on sport, law, and business matters. Grab your pen and paper because today Alicia is taking us to school. She'll talk about networking. In fact, she is researching networking, so she offers a unique and new perspective and lots of tips for us. How to organize your week so you do nothing that you don't want to do. Calling your shot and chasing your dreams. This is so full of great advice. It can barely be contained in one podcast episode. So without further delay, let's hear from Professor Alicia Jessup. Professor Alisa Jessup is an attorney licensed to practice in California and Colorado who focuses on the intersection of sports, business media, and the law at Pepperdine University. She's the founder of RulingSports.com and a contributor to The Athletic and The Washington Post. Welcome to the Leadership is Female podcast, Alicia. Thank you so much. We are pumped to have you. And I want to start off with asking you, in your own words, who you are, what you do, and how you got there. Great. Thank you. So in my own words, I look at myself as a storyteller. And that might seem kind of weird because on the surface, I'm a professor. But how I got into becoming a professor was through storytelling. So like you mentioned, in 2011, I started a sports law blog at the time called rulingsports.com. And this came after I graduated from law school. So I graduated from law school at the start of the Great Recession. And Coming into law school, I had these wide aspirations that I was going to go work in Hollywood as a general counsel for a film studio. So in law school, I'm plugging away. I have the right internships. I'm in the right organizations. I had really good grades. I graduated in the top 10% of my class. And the Great Recession, so the stock market takes that big dive in the fall of 08, which was my 3L year. And with that moment, it really wiped out a lot of the plans that I had been building in my head for myself, because what it meant is similar to the moment we're living in today with COVID, business really slowed down. And so businesses who had plans to hire um, incoming attorneys moved away from those plans and just kept their older, more experienced attorneys on board. So I was faced with a decision early in my career of, well, you thought this is what you were going to be. And now that door is apparently closed. So how are you going to keep moving down the road? And we can get into this a little bit later. But the road I took was something that had always captivated my heart, which was storytelling. For as long as I can remember, I've been dabbling in stories. And my mom even has some that I wrote when I was seven. I wanted to be a sport journalist when I was a kid, 
um, but I was talked out of it by a male editor of my local newspaper who gave me every reason under the sun why nobody, man or woman, should ever want to be a sports writer. So I ended up pursuing a legal degree, but all roads, I believe, come back to what your true passion is. And for me, that's storytelling. So with the launch of the blog, in 2011, which came about because I was working a corporate law job where I was dying a slow death. It was really boring to me. It didn't light a fire under me. It didn't strike my passions. I needed an outlet. I needed an outlet for what I loved, which again was writing and also sports. So I just started a sport law blog. I didn't think anybody would read it. Um, I thought maybe my dad would read it if I was nice to him, but it literally took off overnight because I found this unique intersection that nobody at the time was discussing. And from that point forward, I have used that moment to put me on this path where on paper, I have a lot of different jobs, but if you look at what each of the jobs has in common, it's storytelling. So as a professor, I teach students the law, so I teach sport law at Pepperdine University, and my approach to being a professor is what is called a narrative teaching approach, so I use the tool of storytelling to help students break down really, really tough material in applicable ways that they can go out into the industry and utilize in their own careers. I'm a sports writer. I've been a sports writer for a decade. Um, I presently have a contract with the Washington Post and The Athletic. Obviously, that entails storytelling. And I'm a consultant on the areas of athlete well-being and transition for sport. And much of that work also entails working with people to understand their story. So what's the story they're telling in their head? How did they get to where they are? And then building a new story of how we can take that person and push them into the next stage of their life. So that's kind of a long-winded answer for what I do, but at the core, I look at myself as a storyteller. I love that. And I learn through storytelling, so I feel this instant connection uh, with you. That is amazing. And I can't wait to get more into one door closes, another door opens. But before we really lean into that, I want to take a look at your research your research looks at female and minority leadership in intercollegiate sports governments at the NCAA Division I level. Can you talk about those findings? Yeah, thank you for asking. So in all of these roles that I engage in, I've seen a lot of things in the sport industry. So as a sports writer, for instance, when I was teaching at the University of Miami, I was also credentialed for the Miami Heat, and I spent four full seasons in the Miami Heat locker room covering that team. I've traveled the world, I've covered sporting events, and through those experiences, I've been given the great gift that I've gotten to know so many incredible people in the sport industry. As I look at the industry, so I began this research ardently in 2015, as I began looking at the landscape of the industry, I realized that I was meeting incredibly driven, successful, talented women, and also people of color, both male and female, but they weren't at the top of the organizational chart. And so in some cases, I was meeting people who had worked in the industry for 20 to 30 years, but they were nowhere close to the top of the organizational chart. And I begin asking myself, well, why, why, why is this? What's going on here? And my research led me into traditional business research. And so at that time, which again, 2015, we weren't in the era that we are now in 2020 when we're recording this, where conversations like Me Too and Black Lives Matter are front page news and companies are proactively engaging in diversity and inclusion work and hiring. This was news that if it was being covered at all, it would be covered on page 40 of a business journal. Okay. It, it wasn't front facing popular press news, but as I dug into the work, I got into the research from the field of business. And one thing that immediately struck me is at the time, the percentage of female fortune 500 CEOs was 
the exact same percentage as female division one FBS athletics directors. So you can think of an FBS division one athletics director as being a CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation. Now, granted, it's a nonprofit corporation, but schools like the University of Texas generate $215 million a year through their athletics programs. So I took a step back and I said, huh, there's something really interesting going on here, that there's only 4.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs who are women, and there's only 4.8% of Division I FBS athletics directors who are female. So what's going on? This is an issue that isn't just limited to the traditional corporate world, but obviously this issue is permeating into the sport landscape too. So what a lot of my research looks at, and it's expanded beyond sports. So currently I'm working on a massive research project with an organization called Women in Film, where I'm looking at why women in the screen industry don't receive the same funding as men for their projects, whether it be bringing a movie to life, creating their own production company, the same paucity, so the same disparity between funding exists in that industry as it does our sport industry, as it does in Fortune 500 corporations. The biggest finding I could tell you that is really driving this disparity forward that I do believe is something that if we all put our collective heads together could break is networking. We as a professor, you as someone who has extensive experience in the sport industry, we have been preached to the importance of networking, network, network, network. I can preach that all day long, but if I don't teach people how to meaningfully network, A, and B, if the decision makers that they need to network are unwelcoming to certain types of people, if there are these invisible barriers that exist between one group and another, you're never going to be able to optimize and effectively network. So the key thing that my research is centering around right now is how do we infiltrate the network and how do we get incredible, talented, creative, inventive, diverse candidates to the decision makers, the gatekeepers, we call them in my research, to the gatekeepers who can actually elevate them up this traditional corporate structure or on the flip side, if you don't want to play in that corporate, excuse me, that traditional corporate structure, how do we inspire and motivate and teach you to begin carving your own entrepreneurial path and make you the CEO and forego that 20, 30 year journey? So that's a broad answer to your question, but I think the biggest finding across my research in this space is the need to really reimagine and reinvent what networking looks like on both sides from the networkee and the person being networked and also inspiring all people, but in particular women and people of color to create their own businesses and make themselves the CEO. And so providing them the tools, the courage, and most importantly, the capital the money to finance those businesses to give them the same chance that other people traditionally have in this ethos. Wow. Um, I need to pause just so I can write down all the notes that I wanted to take from everything you just said. I cannot wait to see what your findings produce. And I have to tell you that you know this is, well, not specifically a focus group of one because I talk to a lot of women Um, But networking is the key. The most successful women that I've interviewed on the Leadership is Female podcast, most of them didn't apply for the positions in which they currently serve. They were offered the job or the opportunity to go after the job through their networks. So they had found the key to creating a strong network for themselves and then ultimately didn't have to put their application in the pile. The job opened and they thought, hey, I know who needs to occupy this this chair. Um, Let's start the conversation. So they they had some some key to unlocking that future possibility. How interesting and how rewarding if we can teach others exactly how, how to do that, how to make the right steps. 
The biggest mistake that I see a lot of people making, and this is <laughs> probably going to sound really bad. First of all, every human on this earth has innate value. You should be speaking to every single person you come in contact with. I don't care if that person is a custodian. That person has incredible value that can help you. One of the best lessons I learned as a litigator. So I began my career as a litigator. I was in the courtroom and I really appreciate this lesson that my trial practice lawyer at Chapman University taught me, which was when you go into the courtroom, you are kind to everybody. You are not above anybody. You are not above the bailiff. You are not above the court reporter. You are not above the custodian who comes in at night to clean up your mess at the end of the day. You are not above anyone. That has served me really well. First of all, we should just be nice to people as a personal um personal rule that you create for your life. You should never only be kind to people because you're seeking something. So I think that's one mistake that a lot of people make in networking. They come into this relationship, not working from a mind space of what can I give you, but instead, what can I get from you? And what can you give me? I've never approached networking in the latter way. I have always approached networking from the mindset of what can I give this person? How can I be of service? How can I be of value to this person that I am working to build a relationship with? And I really think it's that subtle shift in mindset that has opened up so many doors for me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been times that I've asked people in my network Hey, can you help me with this? Can you introduce me to that person? But I think if you talk to my network, they will tell you it's very rare that I ever ask them for anything. And so what that has molded into is I now have this beautiful cacophony, if you will, of people at all levels of the employment sector, all different backgrounds where we're just friends. And I don't know where any of us are going. I don't have some grand insight into the future, but we're all in it together. And someday there's going to be a day where I can help one of them and they can help me. So I'll give you an example of this on two points. Um, Being nice to everybody. So when I was covering the Miami Heat, I was in the locker room. I was one of the only women in the locker room. And of course I would talk to the players. I would talk to the other reporters. But I also made it a point to get to know the equipment professionals in that locker room. Those are people who are in that locker room day in, day out. They kind of have a crazy job. Like they're touching people's jock straps. They're cleaning up sweaty towels. You know, it's not a glamorous job. And so many reporters overlooked those people. I got to know them. I would start talking to him. Hey, how's it going? What's your family doing? What are you doing for the holidays? We became friends. Literally, it was one of the last games I covered for the Heat. The Heat did not make the playoffs. So the season was ending. The players were going every which way. I'm walking out the locker room for the last time of the season. And the equipment guy comes chasing me down the hallway. And he goes, hey, Alicia. And I'm like, yeah, and he, I'm not going to name the player, but it's a pretty big name player. He goes, so-and-so is in the locker room and he wants to talk to you. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, I've been telling him about your heart for others and how you give back to your community and how you do X, Y, and Z for this organization. And he's really interested and he wants you to go back in there and talk to him about it. This was a player I was having an infinitely hard time connecting with throughout the entire season to get a quote from. And because I befriended this man who thought of me just as a friend, he put in a good word with me. And now I have that guy's number on my phone and I can call him whenever I want to. So I think with networking, one of the biggest mistakes I see people of all levels (laughs) make is they go into this headspace of, well, what can I get from you from this relationship instead of beginning the process with what can I give? 
Yes, 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 yes. I love this. I love this story. And I love those findings. I couldn't find that more true myself. And um, I see a shift. Well, with some people, you make it or you don't. But when you're coming out of college, you're so desperate to land your first job. Every conversation is around like, can I get a job from you? And that's what starts to lay the groundwork of what networking is and how it's represented for you in your life. It's like, let me meet this person to see if they have a connection to employment. And so I think that might be how it all begins. And what is that point in your career where you can make that shift and think, okay, how can I be in service to this person? What if I'm just nice to them and we spark a a friendship or I think of somebody that I can introduce them to that might be meaningful? Mm -hmm. What could that produce um, versus the initial conversation of, of what can I get from you? I genius, genius. Thank you. I feel like it's really simple. And it's a reason why I'm grateful to be in the position I am today as a professor. I never, as a child, dreamt of growing up to be a professor, but I truly feel like this is one of the best jobs I can have to help others. And I think back to myself where professors and my mentors were telling me network, 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 network. I don't, I didn't grow up in a place where I had extensive connections. Um, my parents are wonderful people. We come from a very middle-class community. I was well provided for, but my parents didn't go to college. They didn't have a deep professional network. There were a few people in it, but I didn't have some like clear cut line to getting to where I wanted to go. So every professor who took me under their wing was saying network, network, network but they weren't telling me how to do it. I was working under an assumption that networking meant signing up for every conference, every speaker series. I was living in LA at the time. So I was quote networking my little heart out, but I was doing it completely wrong to the point that you just raised. I met incredible people as a law student. I met Michael Jackson's attorney. I met the head of this studio, that studio. So if we're talking about like people I was coming into contact with, I don't think anyone at my age at that time was coming into contact with more impressive people than I was. The problem was I was doing what you were saying. I was coming into this interaction from a place of need. Yep. Okay. And it's a very simple mindset shift where everyone's busy. Okay. So as much as humans have evolved, our minds are pretty simple at the core, at the most basic level, all of us are just trying to survive. We may not consciously be aware of it, but at the core, every person is just consciously trying to survive. So what happens is when you approach a person that you don't know, this person does not know you from Adam or Eve, and you come into that initial conversation asking for something, that person's survival mechanism triggers in their head where you're now not somebody that they want to get to know. You're a threat because Mm. you are sending a signal to them that I'm going to take from you. So it is so subtle. It's so easy. And I wish somebody had told me this when I was 21 or 22 or even 18, where if you instead approach that relationship from a standpoint of what can I give to you? And so the strategy I took, I finally realized this when I was 26 years old and I started ruling sports, I realized my networking strategy wasn't working. I had no shortage of access to the entertainment industry. I was going to red carpet events. My friends worked in the industry, but I wasn't getting the jobs. And I knew I was really smart. I knew I was really capable. So I was like, what is going on? And it was then that I realized my networking strategy was broken and I had to fix it. And so what I did is I created the website, which in turn allowed me to offer something of value to others. The thing of value I chose to offer was an ability to interview people for my blog. As you know, as a podcast host, Mm. 
people love talking about themselves. So now when I was approaching these people who I wanted to network with, I was no longer reaching out saying, hey, can we do an informational interview? Hey, <laughs> can you read my resume? Can I pick your brain? That's my favorite. Yeah, can I pick your brain? No, I was coming to them with something of value. I was allowing them to publicize themselves and the door was open. So that's my advice to your listeners. And maybe it's a blog, maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's a white paper. Maybe you see a problem that their business is facing and you're going to write a report or you're going to build a deck on how they can fix it. Maybe their graphic design is a little wonky and you think it could be better. So you're going to take a Saturday, you're going to open up Adobe and you're going to redesign the graphic and you're going to send it over to them. You have to get into the mindset of what a value from my personal experience, my skill set, my knowledge base, can I create that the person I want to talk to needs? Incredible tips and real examples. Boy, do I love how much of a storyteller you are because it makes this so digestible. Like I think the listeners can walk away and think about how they can put themselves in the networking shoes of somebody who's out there in service to others, building their network in service to others. And you've brought up ruling sports a couple of times, and I'm so excited to ask you this, this next question. Um, ruling sports is leading the dialogue on all the good that comes from sport and was launched with the knowledge that there are many great sports stories that go untold. So Alicia, tell us what's the best story that you have uncovered or published on ruling sport. Sure. So there's been so many, and honestly, at this point, ruling sports is a little forgotten because now most of my writing goes on the athletic, but that was my stepping stone. That's what got me to where I am today. And my vision in creating that website was I love sports. And at the time I would spend at least an hour a day reading the major sport websites. And I kept saying, all of this is really bad news. You know, you would go to the front page of your newspaper. I, a lot of you might not know what a newspaper is. Someday I'm going to have to tell my children that there is a thing <laughs> called a newspaper. Uh, but you would go to the front page of the sports section of the newspaper, or you would go online to the landing page of the website, and it would just be bad news. This person abused his wife. This person got a DUI. This guy got suspended for drugs. And I sat back and I said, wait a second, I know a fair amount of athletes from my personal life and they're all pretty good, upstanding people. Like they're no different than me. And I realized under the surface that there were stories there of athletes doing good and athletes creating positive impacts for their community. So I went down this road where my website was based on legal analysis of sports. So I was utilizing my legal education, but also working to uncover the stories of athletes actually being good people. And at the time I had a broadcasting agent and he told me, he said, Alicia, you are not going to get a job with ESPN with this approach. You're not going to get the job because you need to find the gotcha moment. People don't want to read this. I was writing for Forbes at the time. I had a great story on Forbes um, where I interviewed Akeem Olajuwon, so one of the greatest NBA players to ever live. I interviewed an executive from the NBA about their endeavors in Africa. I interviewed an NBA agent from Nigeria about the role that basketball could play in building that economy in Africa. My editor at Forbes removed the story. So you can't find this story. It's not on there anymore. He removed the story and said, Alicia, people don't want to read this. You need to find the hook. You need to find, you know, the gotcha moment. Like, and I sat back and I said, so you have to understand, I'm not a trained journalist. I didn't go to journalism school. I don't have a master's in journalism or communication. I was on my high school newspaper, but that's the full extent of my traditional journalism knowledge. And I sat back and I was like, this is a broken system. I know my friends, 
we're the consumers of media and we are tired of reading about bad news. And so I kept going. Now my contract with Forbes got canceled and I kept going because I believed in what I was doing. And in 2019, summer of 2019, I have a contract with the Washington Post, but I'm not writing a ton for them. I get an email and it's from a man named Paul Fichtenbaum, who was the former editor-in-chief at Sports Illustrated. And he had moved over to The Athletic to be the head of content for The Athletic. And he emails me and he says, Alicia, I've been reading your work since you started. Historically, there was not a natural fit for you in this sport media landscape because you have a very unique approach. But things are changing. And I think the athletic is a natural fit for you. So I know that was not a direct answer to your question, which I will get to, but I think it's important that people hear that story because you have to trust your instincts. I didn't want to write like that. That way of writing does not align with my personal values. I I hope if you don't know me and you're listening to this, you're getting a sense that I'm a person (laughs) whose personal value is about kindness and lifting people up. So traditional journalism isn't the model built for me. And I could have heard that advice, which came from multiple people, Asians, editors, and said, well, I guess I have to quit or change my personal value system. And I refuse to do both. So my favorite story though, that came on Ruling Sports, was the first actual interview that I did with a man who recently passed, who was one of the greatest men I've ever met, a man named Rafer Johnson. And to a person my age, that name's probably not familiar, but in the 1960s, Rafer was one of the most decorated athletes in America and the world. He won the gold medal in the 1960 Olympics. Um, He was an African-American man who grew up in a segregated Texas. His family moved to California when he was a young boy. He spent part of his life living in a rail car. So the family did not have much money. And so they lived in a rail car. He ended up at UCLA as a two-sport athlete, so track and field. And he also played basketball under Coach Wooden. I met him in 2011 when ruling sports was all of two months old. And I had my first credential, which was to the Manhattan beach open, which is an annual volleyball tournament in California. That year, NBA players were locked out of the league and a number of them, including Kevin love had signed on to play in this tournament. So I got credentialed with the thought process of, Ooh, this is an awesome story. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to interview these NBA players about what they're doing during the lockout. So I'm there, I'm running around the sand trying to find Kevin Love. And this man that I don't know comes up to me and he taps me on the shoulder because he sees my credential. And he says, that's who you need to talk to. Now, mind you, I'm pretending to be a sports writer. I'm really not a sports writer. I'm a blogger for like six (laughs) weeks. And I'm like, oh yeah, I need to talk to him. I don't know who this guy is, but I, I can't show that. I'm a sports writer. I go, who is that? And he goes, Rafer Johnson. I'm like, oh, yes, of course. Never heard of Rafer Johnson. So I have a Palm Pilot at the time. I don't know if anyone remembers those. Oh, I, I do. it in my Palm <laughs> Pilot really quickly. And I'm like, oh, I do need to talk to this man. So he and I became friends. He said, look, I'm watching my daughter play volleyball right now. Why don't we meet up for breakfast? And I'll tell you my whole story. And It was literally like sitting across from living history. After he won the gold medal, he became good friends with the Kennedy family. He actually wrestled the gun away from RFK's assassin. I mean, just the depth of experience and places that this man's life took him. The fact that I got to sit across from him one-on-one for hours and have him recount that for me is something I will hold on to forever but also something lesson worthy. I was nobody. I was nobody when I approached that man. I wasn't writing for The Athletic. I didn't have a contract with The Washington Post. I wasn't a professor. I was a 27-year-old litigator from Orange County pretending to be a sports writer with the blog. And he was so kind to me. I said, I'm Alicia Jessup from Ruling Sports. He said, oh yeah, I know it. No, no, there's zero chance he had ever heard of the blog. 
but he treated me like someone of value. And I think that's something those of us who have ascended in our careers could be um, benefited by remembering is we also need to show kindness. It's that time of year, one of my favorite times of year, annual goal setting. We get to make the choice on what we want to pursue for the next 12 months. Do you need some help? Do you need a guide to take you through this annual practice? If so, head on over to my website, emilyjansen.com, and download your free guide to creating annual goals. One of the reasons I love this practice so much is it allows me to reflect on the current year and plan how I'll grow in the next I've had this practice for several years, so it's fun to look back and see just how far I've come. Join me in being a goal getter and download my free guide at emilyjansen.com. Don't forget to share your goals with me and other Leadership is Female listeners by following me on Instagram at emilyjansen and hashtag leadership is female. You have an athletic mindset. You are tough and yet calm under pressure. You are a leader, a hard worker, and a believer in the process. Now is time to put it all together. Athletes seek an edge and the Win Again Academy will give you just that. Visit markmoyer.com slash winagain-academy. Register today for a virtual networking event in the club room. You won't believe the people you'll meet. Personally, it's the best virtual networking event platform I have ever used and most connected event I have attended. Visit markmoyer.com slash win again dash academy. Wow. What an amazing story. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And it really comes full circle to what you said about networking. Just being kind to people led to this incredible opportunity for you to tell Rayford's story and create a, a friendship with him. So I, I love that. That is amazing. And you mentioned so many things that you're involved in, um, from ruling sports to the athletic um, that you're writing for now, the Washington Post, professor at Pepperdine. Man, you must have a busy, busy schedule. Can you tell us, how do you organize all of that stuff? How are you successful in all of these endeavors when you are doing so many things? Great question. Um, I think... A lot of it is time management. So I went to engineering school for undergrad, and then I went to law school. And both of those practices are so focused on time management. When you're a lawyer, um, you live your life on a one-sixth of an hour schedule. So you bill your client based on a one-sixth of an hour, and you need to be doing something every sixth of the hour, because if you aren't doing something you're not billing. And if you're not billing, you're not getting paid. And if you're not getting paid, you're having to sit in the office a lot longer than you should be. So for me, people oftentimes say, wow, you just must work all the time. And for those who are very, very close to me, whether it's my family or someone who's dated me or a roommate, they know that's not the case. I don't work on weekends unless I'm covering a sporting event. At most, I work 50 hours a week, most. And that's that's a long week for me. So my key is truly organization. I live and die by my planner. My planner is my little baby. And I actually have a hard planner. So I utilize my smartphone. Everything's calendared in the smartphone. But then every Friday after I check everything off to make sure I got what I needed to get finished, finished, I write out the next week's plan. So something it's really important for me to have a visual of what has to get done that next week. So my full-time job is I'm a tenure track professor at Pepperdine university. That is where the full amount of my energy is going. So I schedule in everything that has to get done to do that job 1000% of the way. Then if there's any free time, I build in my other projects. So if people look, I hadn't written a story for The Athletic until today when we're recording this for about two and a half months. I kind of went silent there. 
And it's because I've been working on this massive research project. And so that had to be set aside. So I think the key thing for me has been prioritizing and work is very important to me. I'm someone who is kind of unique, I guess, in the sense that work really fills my cup. I love what I do and it's a lot of fun, but I don't want work to be the entire cup. Family is also very, very important to me. Um, My parents live in Denver. I'm in Los Angeles. I carve out specific times where I know I'm leaving Los Angeles. I'm going to be in Denver. I might have to work while I'm there, but I'm going to block off certain days where there is no work being done. My social life is really important to me. Um, I'm single. I don't want to be single forever. So I have to carve out time to date and to meet people. My physical health is really important to me. I block out at least two hours a day to work out or to meditate and keep my head clear. So my applicable advice would be pick three to four non-negotiables for your life. So I have to do my job and I have to do it really well. I, for me, I need to maintain personal relationships, whether it's family, social, or romantic. I need to maintain my health. Um, And then maybe you can throw in a fourth thing. So for me, church is really important. Volunteering with my community is really important. And then you visualize in the 168 hours you're given each week, how does this all fit in? And for me, I rank order them. So if it's a crazy work week, maybe I only get three or four hours of social time. Or maybe I need to cut the workout down 30 minutes a day. Um, But I think if you're focused and you're strategic and you actually map it out, instead of letting life just happen to you, you will be surprised with how much you can actually fit into a week. You are the definition of you run your day. You don't let the day run you. And what an awesome answer. I'm so pumped about this because I'm, I'm really big on, on these types of topics. And so anyone, anytime I can talk to somebody who's achieving way more than me in the organizational realm of things, I am super excited. Um, so listeners, I hope you were taking notes here. If you weren't, I'm going to break this down and share what Alicia said in some, some text in support of this podcast. Cause it's so, so important. What was the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome? You've had all of these things you've done, the success, this, this crazy road of one door opens, um, when another door closed, what was the biggest hurdle? It's kind of what we've been talking about throughout our conversation. And the biggest hurdle was getting started. I had these dreams to work in entertainment and sports on paper. I did everything right. I did what everybody told me to. I went to law school. I graduated at the top of my class. I was an editor of the law review. I had networked. I had internships in the industry. And then when the day came that I walked across that stage with my cap and gown, the job I was working toward didn't meet me. And so that was by far the biggest hurdle. And I meet so many people who want to get into these uber competitive industries. Um, And I've been there before. I've been there before. And your journey is going to look different than mine. How you actually achieve whatever your personal dream is for whatever industry you want to work in, it's going to look different to how I achieved it. But I'll give you a little piece of advice that is probably going to be really annoying because it was really annoying to me (laughs) when I was in your place. But there's a book that was edited by Katie Couric. So Katie Couric is a former news host. Um, So your moms and dads probably know who she is if you don't, but she was very successful. And she edited this book a few years ago called The Greatest Advice I Ever Received. And it's short little essays by some of the most famous people in the world talking about difficulties they encountered and what advice they received to overcome that difficulty. And I particularly remember the advice that Katie herself gave. So Katie is in this uber competitive industry of broadcast journalism. And her piece of advice was don't quit. And 
I've taken that advice to the bank. Um, I am relentless. If there's something I want, I know I'm going to get it. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next year. The journey might take me down roads I never thought I was going to travel down, but I'm going to get there. And I, I think you can see that in my career with ruling sports, with people telling me early on, this isn't going to work, Alicia. You are not going to get that major media deal doing this type of writing. Well, <laughs> here I am in 2020 with a contract with one of the biggest competitors to ESPN. So I, I think things worked out okay by not quitting, but I also know there's some further places I want to go. So I have to keep chugging along. So that was a gnarly hurdle. And my heart is with you. If you are there, the only way you fail is if you quit. And in the intermission between where you are now and where you want to go, you might have to do some things just to keep yourself afloat. So when I was building really ruling sports, I had a full-time job that was not related to sports. I was a corporate litigator, but I knew this was my passion. I knew it was my passion, but Hey, I also need to feed myself. I can't just quit work entirely and work on this passion. I need to feed myself. So I don't want you to think that I'm telling you don't quit means just go all in on your dream and take on massive amounts of debt or live in poverty. What I'm telling you is if it's really your dream, you're going to build in some activities you can do each week into that schedule that are going to kick the ball further toward the goal line to getting you to that dream while you're managing everything else that you need to be a normal functioning adult. You need a job. You need to be able to pay your bills. You need relationships with others. You can't just seclude yourself and become a hermit. You need to work out. You need to eat healthy. But what can you fit in each week that is related to this big, bold dream that you have? I wrote something down when you were talking, and it was, there's a difference in taking feedback like in your example um, with with Forbes and ruling sport and the difference in believing in yourself. So you believed in what you wanted to do. You believed that there was a place for it. And I want to note, it is important to listen to feedback, but you don't have to take the advice of every person who gives you feedback. You have to look inside and decide on what you really believe in too. So I wanted to make sure and reiterate that and hope that everybody heard what you said there. And then the second piece we can, you know, the buzzword today is side hustle. Like what is your side hustle? It could be your dream of finishing a marathon or a 5k, or it could be buying your name. Um, you as first name, last name.com and starting a blog. It could be um, working to grow your skills in social media. It could be learning to bake the best cupcakes in the world. Like it could be anything, but like what is burning inside your brain right now besides your day job that might give you that extra energy, that extra lift that might open a door in the future. Like make the space in your schedule, as Alicia says, to have, have room to explore those ideas and those passions um, that, that you might have. That I love that call out. I think it's so critical. It also relates back to my research. So the research that I'm doing right now for women in film, I'm talking to some of the biggest power players in Hollywood. Like think of the top five power players in Hollywood. I've talked to them for this research. At the same time, I'm talking to emerging creators. So, um, so the people who will become the Tyler Perry's 20 years from now, those are the people I'm talking to. And one thing that is really striking me in these conversations is some people have a lot of confidence in their idea, and those people tend to be men, and other people really don't have a lot of confidence in their idea and where they're going, and those people tend to be women. One of the biggest things that a woman can do to hurt herself from getting to where she wants to go is not believing that where she wants to go is a valuable destination. 
So what do I mean by that? I talk to these men in this research and they go to these pitch meetings where they're pitching their film to a studio and the studio might just completely destroy their pitch. But the man says, well, forget you. I love this story and I believe in this story and I believe it's marketable. So guess what? I'm just not going to do business with you, but I'm going to keep working on this story and I'm going to get it made. I don't know where right now, but it's going to get made. A lot of the women I talk to, when they get that feedback, they just stop. They say, well, Paramount, I'm just using Paramount as an example. Paramount told me this isn't a marketable idea, so I guess I'll just stop and well, if I stop long enough, I'm going to leave my job in this industry and maybe I'll go sell insurance. And you, I'm making a big generalization, but from, this is anecdotally, I see that type of response more from women than I see from men. And that's something that's holding us back. One thing each of you has to do in your life, if you want to live a fulfilling life that's true to your own self, is what's the one non-negotiable thing you were put on this earth to do? For me, I know I'm here to tell stories. And I started telling sports stories, but as my life evolves, I realize that there's other stories that I'm here to tell. So guess what? I'm going to fight to tell those stories. What, What are you here for? And is your belief in yourself and in this mission for your life so weak? That if one person tells you, that's a dumb idea, or no, sorry, we can't hire you, you just stop. You have to have confidence in the knowledge of understanding what you. I put like 15 circles around Katie Couric, don't quit on my paper, because this all circles back to that same idea. Like if you have the passion, if you can identify your non-negotiable have the confidence to pursue it. It's your life. Don't quit. I love that, Alicia. And this has been such a fun interview. I have loved talking to you. I need to bring you back on the podcast when your research is complete so you can tell us all about your findings. But I've got to ask you, aside from Don't Quit by Katie Couric, what is your favorite quote? Yes, I love this question. So my favorite quote is from a writer named Anna East Nin. And the quote is, and the day came when the risk it took to remain tight in the bud was more painful than the risk it took to bloom. And when I started ruling sports and I was working at my corporate law office, I found this quote on the front of a card at a shop in Laguna Beach. And it literally stopped me in my tracks because I realized I had this dream and vision for what I wanted my life to look like, but because I didn't have money in the bank, because nobody was hiring me, I was closing in on my own life and not blooming into the purpose I was put on this earth for. So I bought the card, I cut the front page off, I glued it on a black piece of paper and I stuck it with um, push pins onto the bulletin board in my office. And every day when I was working on my legal work, I would look over at that quote and I would say, all right, is it time? Are you ready to do this yet? I then got another copy and I put it in a frame in my bathroom. So every morning when I was getting ready, I would look at it and I realized that the power didn't lie in other people for me to fulfill what I wanted to do on this earth. And I I think that's an important point for everyone to stop and maybe replay what I just said. I had come up in life understanding that to get to where I needed to go, I needed a job from somebody else. I was never taught or shown No, Alicia, you can create the opportunity yourself. You are the painter. You are the sculptor here. What do you want this to look like? And so when we talk about my life now and when people are like, oh, wow, you're so busy. First of all, I'm really not. But secondly, 
I'm not doing anything in my day that I do not want to. I have crafted this by design because I took this quote to its most literal sense. And I said, okay, you could take what to the average member of society looks like a massive risk right now in quitting a corporate law job in Orange County, California, that was paying my bills, giving me benefits and a retirement account. And you can quit that in the midst of the greatest recession our country had then seen since the Great Depression. And you can move home at 27 years old into your parents' basement and take a 35% pay cut as a prosecutor. I got a job as a prosecutor. Um, to go after this dream you have of being a sports writer and being a storyteller. And to the outside world, this is going to look totally crazy. And everyone's going to think you have lost your marbles. But the real risk is internal. The real risk is getting to the end of the race. We're all going to die. I want to live to be 116 because I want to live across three centuries. Um, so hopefully I'm not dying for a long time, but I know I'm mortal and I'm going to die. And the biggest risk for me was being in those final moments and saying, wow, you were a corporate minion and maybe you have a lot of money in the bank and maybe you got some accolades and maybe your house is paid off but you didn't spend all of the gas that's in your body and all of the gift that you've been given in this life. You played it safe. And to me, playing it safe was a much bigger risk than living out my true purpose. So that's my favorite quote. I think it's so great. Now, Ana Nin has some pretty erotic, weird writings. I don't want people to think that I'm like a huge <laughs> Ana Nin fan, but I love this quote. <laughs> well, Wow, what a mic drop of a story. You gave me like goosebumps from my head to my toes with that explanation and declaration of what your life is meant to be, what you are capable of, what each and every one of us is capable of. Alicia, this has been an absolute pleasure. Where can we stay in touch with you? Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoy this and I appreciate you taking the time and building this incredible resource for people. So my Twitter is at ruling sports and Instagram is also at ruling sports. I don't have a TikTok because I need to sharpen up my dance skills. So maybe that's coming in 2021. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Maybe we can take a virtual dance class together because I've be got really two left feet. <laughs> That'd be really fun. <laughs> All right, Alicia, thank you so much. It's been an honor and I look forward to continuing the conversation. It's so great meeting you. Whoa, I had so much fun speaking with Alicia. Can you tell she's a teacher? I feel like she dropped so much knowledge on us today. It was difficult to drill down to a top four. Here's some of the best of what Alicia shared distilled down to the top four takeaways. Number one, the biggest mistake you are making in networking, not being nice to everyone. Alicia's advice, talk to everyone and be nice to everyone you encounter on the job. When you spark a conversation, ask yourself, what can I give to this person versus what can I get? Number two, trust your instincts. Align your work with your personal values. What does this mean? Remember Alicia's example of Forbes to The Athletic? Forbes told her there was no place for, quote, her type of writing, and she disagreed and kept pursuing what was authentic and meaningful to her. Years later, her work was recognized by The Athletic, who continues to publish her articles today. Number three, on time management. Work can't be the entirety of your life. Her advice, pick three to four non-negotiables for your life, then start dividing up the 168 hours of your week. By managing her time the, quote, lawyer way in one-sixth of an hour, Alicia finds time and space for all she wants to accomplish, both personally and professionally, by staying focused. Her strategy is to plan her entire week on Sunday so she never does anything in her day that she does not want to do. And number four, 
the biggest thing that women do to hurt themselves is that believing where they want to go is not a valuable destination. Ask yourself, if you want to live a fulfilling life, what is the one non-negotiable thing you want to do? Then what are you going to do to make it happen? Is the risk to stay where you are worse than taking the risk to follow your dream? Alicia says, is your belief in yourself so weak that you are willing to just give up? How powerful is that question, you guys? Taking advice from Katie Couric, restated by Alicia, don't quit. Hey you, did you join my email list? I want to stay in touch with you so that you'll have the heads up on new podcast episodes and get the tips you are looking for to empower you to level up. It's easy to sign up. Head on over to emilyjansen.com. I'm so excited you are here and I can't wait to help lead you forward in the career of your dreams. Again, that's emilyjanson.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership is Female podcast. It means the world to me that you chose to spend your time with this podcast today. If you like this episode, subscribe, share, and review. What can you do today to lead her forward? We will do our part to lead her forward because leadership is female. Thank you for joining us. This podcast was recorded and edited by Emily Jansen, public relations by Paige Hegedus, and distributed by Anchor FM.